The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, we're going to introduce some team teaching today. As you guys can tell, uh, it's the marriage, the sermon today is about marriage, and so I brought up some experts. Um, no, as you guys know, here at Heritage, we have a program that, uh, that Pastor Brent and Jeremy and Mitch put together called the Milestones Program. And in the Heritage Milestones Program, they just have identified several different markers kind of in the development and maturity of our kids that are significant and created a program where we come alongside families and kind of help and teach and equip them for discipleship of their own children in the home. Um, and the first step is called the, it's, it's the baby dedications, child dedications. We actually refer to them a little bit more as parent dedications, um, because as you know, it is a significant undertaking to be a parent. And I don't just mean the challenge of it and it's hard and all that kind of stuff, but I mean just the responsibility before God um, to say that this is, this is God's child that I am now raising for them in the background. Is there something scandalous going on behind? <laughs> Tanner's awesome. But um, so anyway, so this is parent dedication where parents are really um, making the dedication to God to say, like, we, we want to we raise this child to follow Jesus all the days of their lives. And so these guys have gone through a, um, a class already with Pastor Brent. They've done all sorts of, of homework where they've put together everything from life verses, written letters of dedication to their children that they can read years later. They've gotten prayer partners um, that are going to just partner with them in prayer for their children in the years to come. It's a significant thing that these families have done. And um, I just want to say really on behalf of the church that we just appreciate what you guys have undertaken. Um, it's, it's not just vain religion. You guys have rolled your sleeves up and really committed to honoring God through raising your children. And I think that's a pretty admirable thing. Don't you guys think, church? Amen. 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 So let me do some introductions here. We have Josh and Renee. Can I pronounce this right? Al- Alfin? Alfin. Alfin. Uh, Josh is a firefighter with the Medford Police Department. Renee is a, now this one, I, hang on a second. How do you say that word right there? Phlebotomist. Thank you. Public schools. I'm sorry. There's teachers here. North Carolina public schools. Let me just say that. Okay. Um, And this is their daughter, Andy Raylan Alfin. Isn't that a cutie? How old is she? Four months old? Anybody younger than four months? No? You win. That's the spot. Both services right there. Um, okay, so it's welcome to you guys. We also have with us Brandon and Natasha Leroux. And their, their child, this is, El, it's pronounced Elliot, correct? Elliot Fay, six months old today. Brandon is a full-time RN on the cardiac floor at Asante, at the ICU cardiac floor. So you've gotten to know some people from here, right? Yeah, which we are thankful for them, right? Stephanie says big thumbs up to, uh, to Brandon. Um, if you don't know that story, it's a good one. We'll tell you some other time. Uh, Natasha is a stay-at-home mom who works occasionally as a substitute teacher of the Medford School District. And uh, then we have with us Tanner and Kayleen. Is it Kayleen? Kayleen Moss <laughs> over here. Uh, Tanner is a full-time student with plans to become a police officer. And Kayleen is a part-time pharmacy technician. And then we have here the Templetons. This is Richard and Heather Templeton. Oh, wait, you have a baby. I didn't even say the name. My goodness. <laughs> Sorry. Sienna Lawrence K. Moss. And this is six months old, the cutie right here in the pink. She's adorable. Um, there we go. 
When I skip you, you get your own applause, just so you know. Um, And then there's Richard and Heather Templeton. This is Kingsley Isaiah Templeton right here. Um, Richard works at Steelhead Finance doing sales and marketing and also owns Templeton Productions. And then Heather owns Arrow Cakes Home Bakery, which, by the way, you should see the stuff this lady makes out of cakes. It's crazy. Instagram or something like that, probably Pinterest, um, Arrow's Home Cakes. And uh, Richard serves on the sound team, and they're in the kids' ministry here as well. And they have Kingsley Isaiah, which I have said. So first of all, let's give a warm round of applause once more time for the families that are up here. Yeah? <coughs> yeah. So what we want to do right now is just take an opportunity just to pray for them and to come alongside them as a church family um, and just encourage them in the Lord as we lift them and their families up to Jesus. So if you would, just bow with me. And, and even as I'm praying, just pray for these families. If you're one of those extend a hand people, do that. If you're not, just pray. And let's just cover these families with prayer and that God would just come upon them and just really bless them in this season of life. Father, we just... Stop and praise you and thank you for the gift, Lord, of children. Lord, it is a joy, it is a blessing that you would, Lord, give us the ability to raise, care for, bond with, and love these children. And so, Lord, on behalf of these, these families, for so many of them, Lord, this is culmination of years of hopes and dreams in being able to have children. And so we just thank you on their behalf and praise you for your blessing in their life. But Lord, we know that this is a blessing that comes along with a lot of responsibility. God, it is a um, sometimes heavy burden to bear even. And so God, we, we want to come to you, Jesus, who said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And we just want to ask, Father, that you would be so preeminent in these homes. God, may this be only step one of a lifetime of seeking you. I pray, God, for the parents that you would give them supernatural wisdom and discernment in accordance with your Holy Spirit, that, that from decisions, when to discipline, when to show grace, when to hug, when to deal with issues. Lord, all, all, there's so many things. It's so difficult. There's so many voices coming into our ears, especially when we have children about, do this, don't do this. This is what worked for me. But God, these are your children, and they desire to raise these children in your way. So Lord, may you lead them and speak into their life your will for these children. And then may you give them, Lord, even the supernatural energy and strength to do it. May you be with these kids. I pray, God, that from the youngest possible age, each one of these kids would just shout out the name of Jesus and would cling to you for the rest of their life. I pray, God, that every child on this stage, the ones being dedicated now and the family extended, I pray for all of them, they would have that boring testimony. Lord, I pray their testimony would be that they don't remember a time that they didn't follow you. And I pray that they would cling to and follow you all the days of their life, that they would know your grace, your gospel, and your faithfulness. And we pray, God, that you would protect them. There's so many things that want to lead our children astray. Lord, we know that Satan wants to not just trip them, but destroy them. So Father, may you be faithful in their lives and protect them. May their homes be a place of nourishment, May there be special relationships between child and parent. May they be led in the spirit by their parents. Lord, may you just bless these homes that your kingdom may be established, that your name might be made more famous through these. And we thank you for them. And on behalf of the church, God, may you come along us and continue, Lord, to show us how we might support, love, and train, Lord, the families that are here. So, Lord, because we are clearly running out of time, we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's hear it one more time for the families.
Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> you got him? You got him? Just drag him on out of here, man, please. Secure, he's on a security team, just so you know. He's totally authorized to do that. Hey, the rest of you, would you do me a favor? Grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3 and also Genesis chapter 1. That one should be easy to find. And while you're doing that, though, lend me your ears. I have a couple of announcements still to go over for you guys. One of them is, first of all, big thank you to all of you that helped out and were volunteers on Easter this year. This year we had over 163 volunteers helping out with Easter, and we were able to welcome over 600 guests, like so above our normal uh, people that are here part of Heritage. We had over 600 guests that had never been to or came with you to Heritage last week, and that's just an awesome opportunity to share the gospel. So thank you guys so much for all the help and work that you put into last week. In addition to that, we baptized 15 people. Oh, I'm so going to mess this name up. Is it on the screen? No, I really have to say it. Um, so I apologize. I think it's Avid. I think I'm right on that. Avid Fellman, Isla Ulrich, Kathleen Rose Warren, Brandon Nugent, Emma Coates, Nathan Shin, Nathaniel Lee, Joseph Connolly, Sierra Stover, Mason Anders, Cameron Robinson, Brandy Norton, Brevin Tenberge, Gabrielle Cicero, and Liam Roby were all baptized last week, which, yeah, amen, excited about that. Um, and in just a moment, we're going to pray for them, and I want to encourage you guys, even if you're not going to remember all the names as you go, but, but continue, church family, to pray for those who get baptized, because you know how Satan works. He's going to want to come and choke things out to pull people away, tell them it wasn't real, you just got caught up in the emotion of a Sunday service, all those sorts of things. We just want to pray that the Lord continues to lead and guide them, that they might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So we're going to do that in just a minute after these other announcements. Also, uh, Man Camp 2017, register. Registration deadline is tomorrow. That's out at uh, Washington Family Ranch, which is an insane facility. Go-kart tracks, zip lines, all kinds of stuff out there. Um, make sure, guys, if you haven't signed up, you're going to want to do that. I think we have around 27 guys from the church going now. We, it is a, uh, a camp that we do with the other Acts 29 churches from the Pacific Northwest. And so I think there's over 300 men that are going to be at it. And the teacher is Yancey Arrington, pa uh, pastor from Houston, Texas. He's coming up with a kind of an MMA, I guess, themed thing about dealing with and battling sin in our lives. So it's going to be a really, really good time. It's de uh, deadline to sign up is tomorrow. You can get information on where and all that, probably in your flyers that you got in your hand or Connect Desk out there. Also, a uh, marriage seminar with Randy Young. He's a local counselor in town, phenomenal counselor. Um, that's on May 5th and May 6th at the Hub. It's going to be Friday night and then Saturday done by noon. Um, and it's a communication workshop. That's kind of his specialty is communication within relationships. And so he's doing a workshop with um, just with married couples that want to come or um, single people who'd like to come and, and be able to get some tools for one day or for your marriage coming up or engaged couples, whatever the case may be. Just come. It's only $20 a couple, which is insane. I mean, it, this guy for counseling charges like $150 an hour and you're going to get him all weekend for 20 bucks. So it is a super worth it investment into your marriage. So that's May 5th and 6th coming up at the Hub. Make sure you sign up for that. And then I'm going to teach on marriage today so that I can guilt trip all of you into signing up for that workshop. Amen? So just do it now. Then you can say, no, I, Jeff didn't make me do it. I did it on my own. So there you go. If you would now, we're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 3. 
And I'm going back to my old ways, I'm about to warn you. I'm only doing two verses today. Kinda. Colossians chapter 3. Every pastor's favorite passage to teach. I've been circling the day to get to teach. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Woohoo! Aren't you glad you got up? Let's pray. <coughs> Father, first of all, we just ask. First, we celebrate, Lord, the, the grace poured out for those 15 people who came forward and made commitments to follow you, Jesus. What a gift and blessing. But Lord, I just pray that even as we prayed for those kids, Lord, there's so much that wants to, to trip us up, choke us out. I pray, God, you, by your grace, would empower them to continue to follow you all the days of their life. May people come around them, teach them, instruct them. May they find community. May they grow in your grace and knowledge. I just pray, God, you would protect them, that they might continue to be effective witnesses and servants in your kingdom. And Lord, now we open up this text this morning. It's a difficult, complicated, misunderstood, controversial passage. So Lord, we need way more than what Jeff has to say. We need your spirit. So may your Holy Spirit just be in this place, Lord. May you blow through this. May you awaken hearts and souls. May you convict. But also, Lord, continue to woo us to your joy. I pray, Lord, for your grace, teaching a text that I have definitely not mastered myself. But Lord, our faith is in you. So right now, Lord, even as we pray and we have our heads bowed, Lord, I pray that this would be indicative of our approach to this passage. If this is the word of God, may we not lord over it. May we not try to change it. May we not try to explain it away. And may we not be afraid of it because we know that you are for our good and our joy. So may you teach us, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Wives, submit to your husbands. Yay, this will be fun, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is um, a passage, undeniably, about roles and order in marriage intended by God. That's what it is. Um, it is one of the most misused and abused passages in all of the Bible. It has been used to absolutely dominate women. Absolutely dominate. It's been used to abuse women to shut up women. It's been completely taken out of context. It's also been used as some sort of formula for getting what you want. If I do this, they'll do that, and I'll get what I want out of that. Both are gross misuses of what God has intended. Both are totally erroneous ways of using this text. This text. The purpose of this passage, believe it or not, the ultimate goal of this text is not about you having a happy marriage. It's not. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of this text is not about you submitting to your husband or even ultimately about you, husband, loving your wife as Christ loved the church. The ultimate purpose in this writing is that we would be submitted to God. All of us. 
Because this all comes on the heels. Remember, Colossians 1 and 2 is all this declaration of the grandness of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us. He's the one who holds all things together. He is lifted up as Lord and God and King. And now we're going into this text about what life for someone who chooses or who is understanding God is Lord and living as if he is Lord, living in those truths, what does life look like? And so this isn't about really your husband. And it's not really about your wife. It's really about Jesus and about trusting that submission to God always leads to deeper cisterns of joy. Always. Regardless of the circumstances that we're in. Not just marriage. We'll be talking about parenting in the next passage. But this is the overall goal here. And it's important and it's worth our time because we, we know this, right? I mean, the historical definition of what marriage is is changing right now. It's changing. It's like people have taken, you know, this, which for thousands of years has been known as a ring. What is this? This is a ring. It's a ring. It's a ring. It's a ring. First century, second century. It's a ring. It's a ring. It's a ring. It's a ring. Now, 2000s, it's not a ring. It's a watch. What do you mean? It's always been a ring. Nope. We've decided now it's a watch. And the definition has absolutely of marriage is actually changing right before our very eyes. And I believe it's going to have massive ramifications on our future and on the generations to follow after us. Now, look, you guys know me. If you don't, please hear me out here. I am, I'm an optimist. I do not believe that our televisions are demon boxes. I do not believe Christians should only see Christian movies. I do not believe that if a Christian has a beer, he'll be on meth next month. I do not believe that, um, that I don't believe listening to Ed Shireen is going to get you in trouble with God. I don't believe any of those kind of things. I'm way more open and way more optimistic than most people when it comes to these kind of things. I'm not a we're all in trouble kind of guy. Even as people watch things happen in our culture and they're like, oh no, we're freaking out. I'm usually like, we'll be fine, calm down. But this is a big deal. What's happening in marriages right now is a really, really big deal. And I believe that as we speak, we are watching the family dynamic and what it's historically been defined and how it's been created to work. We are watching it fall apart before our very eyes. And I know for a fact, we are going to have massive, massive ramifications in the future. And we're already experiencing these things. And people will go, but you can't go back to that, Jeff. You can't. Because not everybody even believes the Bible, first of all. And second of all, that's just that old, antiquated stuff. It doesn't work like that anymore, Jeff. I would say it's not working now. And it is worth our time to go back and say, okay, you know what? God created us, and God created marriage, and God has told, God has, told us how it's all intended to work. It might be worth taking some time to step back and go, you know what? Maybe, maybe it's not so antiquated after all. Now, there's something that we do have to significantly point out right now, and I, I want to do this. In Colossians chapter 3, the verse that's the primary disclaimer before we go further at all is verse 1. In Colossians 3, 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is really, really important. Because here's the deal. <clears throat> We all know that outside of the church, especially, it's, this is controversial in the church, right? Outside the church, this is like blasphemy to our culture, the things that we're going to be talking about and looking at outside the culture. But here's what I want you to know. 
Paul has narrowed down the intended audience at this point, And he makes it really clear in that text when he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, he's going, hey, if you're a Christian in the room, listen up. If you're not a Christian in the room, don't worry about it. This is what he's saying. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, of course you don't like what you're about to hear. Why would you? Why would anyone think that any of this stuff was a good idea? And here's what happens all the time. We as Christians can approach texts like this and go, oh man, this makes me nervous. Oh, this seems so old fashioned. Oh, people hate this. And a lot of times we can be afraid of the reactions of people outside of the church if they hear that we still hold to these things. But here's the truth. With regards to what people outside the church think, I don't care. I don't. And you shouldn't either. It, and I don't mean like some belligerent, rude, whatever, but like the church is not supposed to be trying to sell its marriage ideas to the culture out there. The church is supposed to be telling the culture out there about Jesus. And that's all. Once they come to Jesus, we start dealing with some other stuff. But we shouldn't be like so, oh, I'm scared to death about talking about this and teaching about this. And how do we explain it away? Because in the culture out there, it looks a little bit different. I don't care what the culture out there looks like. Paul's not talking to them. Paul's talking to the church. So if you are an unbeliever and you're here with us, if you are someone who is not following Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you're just here for whatever reason that may be. Here's what I would say to you. There are immensely practical things that we're going to talk about that you may completely, they may hit you so wrong at first that you're just like, this feels wrong. But I'm telling you, there is common graces in doing these things. You will experience benefit from them. You will. But God's not asking you to do this. I want you to know that. God's not looking over your shoulder going, are you doing it? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? The only thing God is speaking to you as an unbeliever is he wants you to know that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, that Jesus carried the burden of the wrath of God against sin to the cross on your behalf, and he loves you desperately, and he's calling you to him. You start there, listen in, use it if you want. This isn't for you. This is for the church. Amen, church? Are you with me, church? It's an important disclaimer to understand. So Paul is talking to Christians. So we don't have to be afraid of how this affects our culture. It isn't written to our culture. It's written to us. Amen? So that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is this. For us to really understand why this is written this way and to understand the bigger picture of what's being talked about, we actually have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Because the definitions and the foundations of all of this are actually laid out in the book of Genesis, not in the book of Colossians. So keep your finger in Colossians because we will come back. But in the book of Genesis, I want to walk through something with you really, really fast. And I got to do this a little quicker than I did in the first service. You guys want to know? Here's what I did wrong in the first service. I spent way too much time on this. And then I talked about the ladies part of this. And then I looked at the clock and I realized I had like 10 minutes to talk to the guys, which seems like such a disservice to the gals in the room. So you guys hopefully are going to get a way better deal. Amen. But we still need you at the 8.30 service because it's getting crowded in here. Anyway, here's where we are. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. In Genesis 1, 26, God has just created the earth. And it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So right off the bat, we see something significant that happens here. In, in ancient Near East cultures, when a king or emperor or ruler ruled over a territory, a lot of times they would erect images of themselves to mark their territory and to let anyone coming into the territory know who was king, who was in authority. You read about some of these statues, these images, throughout a lot of the Old Testament. This is what they did. Well, God's kind of doing the same thing. He's created this garden, Eden, and now he's putting his image. The difference is he uses us. He creates us in his image. Something about us is created in the very image of God. It's different than any other created being. And because of that, right off the bat, there's implications here. He's the creator and we are the creation. And so there is submission issues with regards to our role before God right there. God is an authority. He's the one who created us. For us to come in under his authority and change things around is messing with the created order of all things. Now, he has given us dominion over all things, but we are submitted to God. So that means there's stewardship issues here at play. Like we've been given things that by before God, one day we will be accountable for. We are under shepherds of the great shepherd. He's the creator. He's the owner. He's the ruler. He's the king. Amen? This is why you have to start with the gospel before you do these some sorts of things because you're trying to go back and argue a marriage definition built on a God they don't believe in outside the culture. So it's important to understand this. He's talking to the church and he says, this is how it worked. This is how creation went. This is the authority structure that's laid out. God is God. And then he has these under shepherds here and he gives them a job. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the bird of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Theologians, this is referred to as the cultural mandate. This is God's mission. Now, sometimes our Sunday school understanding of the Garden of Eden, we think of, okay, God created the Garden of Eden and it was just this amazing, lush, perfect tropical paradise and Adam and Eve just scampering around naked all the time, enjoying everything, riding tigers around and things like that. That was the Garden of Eden. It's not totally true. It was perfect in that it was without sin and without error, but it's not done. It's incomplete. The garden's not finished. And God creates Adam and Eve for the purpose of serving with and under him in completing the work that he's begun. He puts them in the garden. He says, now I've given you a job. You're going to fill the earth and subdue it. You're going to have dominion over everything. This is the cultural mandate. You're going to, you're going to have families. You're going to raise children. You're going to build societies. One day you'll build bridges. And it goes, even you can see it in the Bible, right? You start out with a garden. And then when Jesus comes back and restores all things, what is there? There's a city. There's progress. There's building. There's a job to do a mission that God has given man and woman. It's really important to understand that, I believe. So he gives them this mission. This is what they're supposed to do. Now skip forward to Genesis 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. And God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, In a text like, wives submit to your husbands, men love them as unto the Lord. A lot of times people go, see, it's that old school, it's that grumpy old God mentality with all his rules and all this antiquated stuff. Let me just say, 
Whenever people think God's grumpy, take them back to God's original design. Look what he gave them. He put them in this incredible place with perfect relationship with him. He gives them to each other. There's peace there. They're just running around naked. There's no shame. There's one rule. One rule. And in classic human nature, what do we do? Why do you have to give us the one rule? Right? That's what we do. That's one of the most asked questions. Well, if why would God put the tree in the garden in the first place? Like, instead of focusing on the grace and goodness of God, we just want to go, why do you have to give us one rule? Well, it's because we want to be our own kings. We want no rules, right? As we're going to see play out. But people ask that. Why is the tree there? Why is the tree there? And there's all sorts of theories. I'll, I'll give you a part of mine in passing because I do think it's important with regards to the text. I do believe the tree in the garden and the rule God gives them of not to eat of this tree is an opportunity to teach them even from the very beginning there is life and joy and fulfillment in being submitted to the rule of God. But there is death in rebelling against it. I don't think this is God making a threat. I think this is God saying, this is how it just, it's just how it works. This is how it plays out. And I'm calling you to submission with me to honor this rule and trust that I've got your greater good in mind. Please don't question this because there is death in that tree if that's what you do. I believe that's what God's doing there. And so verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and there shall all become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So here's this incredible opportunity where, so Adam is given dominion of the field. He's by himself and he's, God sees like it's not good for man to be alone. He's all by himself. And so he creates this scenario where all these animals are coming before Adam and he's naming them. He gives Adam this job with dominion over the animals. This is part of his job. Start naming the animals. And Adam's noticing there's companionship everywhere. There's sameness, 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 sameness. And there's none of that for himself. And so God reveals that, which is incredibly generous of God in general anyway, because in a certain sense, though, there is sameness, isn't there? Because Adam's fulfillment from the very beginning shouldn't have been totally based on whether he has a wife or not. He's made in the image of who? Of God. So there's some sameness there. That's his place of fulfillment to begin with. But God creates this, lays this out. He's so good to Adam. And, and so Adam's going through and he's naming him dog, bull, chicken, cat. Oh, no, Satan made those. Cat, get those out. Get, um, that's my favorite joke. Um, all these different things, like he's, he's going through and he's doing all these things and he starts realizing, I don't, I don't have the kind of community and fellowship that all these other things. And then God 
puts Adam to sleep because he's already intended to, to fulfill this desire anyway uh, before Adam even knew it was a desire. That's how good God is. And so he creates Eve. And he brings Eve to Adam and he gives her to him and, and he sings this love song at the end, this, whoa, man, that's a, what he's in this bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's gushing. He's excited. He's got this beautiful woman dressed like she is. She comes in and he's like pumped. And then take a look at what happens. I want you to notice, first of all, I want you to notice three things. Number one, God says, or Adam, God says about Adam there was no helper or no, no helpmate, no fitting helpmate for him. But God doesn't create buddies. You notice that? When Adam needed a helper, when Adam needed community, he didn't give Adam buddies. Buddies are great, but they are not a suitable helpmate. Girlfriends are great. They're not a suitable helpmate. And so he gives her Eve, and, and here's the thing. When he makes Eve, she's different. And that's on purpose, and that's okay. Like we, One of the things we keep trying to redefine is even issues regarding sexuality. We try to make everyone same. We can't, everything from, from skin colors to everything, we're so consumed with rights, which is super important that we're not mistreating people based on things like that, but we can go so, that pendulum can swing so far, and now it's almost like we don't want to be different in any way whatsoever, but especially with men and women, he didn't make the same. And I don't, I don't just mean that from, don't go all like, oh, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's not what I'm talking about necessarily, though that is important because part of the mission of Adam is what? To fill the earth. Kind of important to have Eve if they're going to fill the earth and have procreation. There's no question about it. But they are different. They're created different. And he brings Eve to them. And then here's the other thing that I want you to understand. He doesn't just give Eve to Adam because he thinks that Eve's going to just make him happy. From the very beginning, Adam's designed to find his joy and fulfillment in God. Eve didn't become the substitute for that. She's not a toy for him. And she's not even just a friend or a partner or even just a wife. He gives Eve to Adam for a purpose. And the purpose is that they might the whole idea, help mate, that together they will partner in the mission that God has given them. Please understand this. The point of the first marriage was to advance the mission of God. That's even why they're made separately, that the whole fulfill the earth, fill the earth thing can happen. So from the very beginning, we should know we don't approach marriage as, I want what makes me happy. That was not the goal. The goal was, I'm going to bring these two together that they might advance the mission of God and serve and walk with me. That's the point of marriage. I think that is really, really important to understand. Eve was not there for her purposes. Now, it does become clear from a reading of Scripture as you move forward, and this is undeniable. Moving forward through Scripture, just read it for what it is. Leave commentaries, you just read it, it becomes blatantly obvious. There is a different authority level given Adam than there is Eve, or given husbands in general, than there are wives throughout the Scripture. I think that's unarguable there. 
And some would go, well, that's just because of ancient times. And they, they want to start now discrediting the actual inspiration of Scripture for that. That is not the position we hold or ever will hold here at Heritage whatsoever. It is an unmistakable truth that we see this. But you need to understand that with that authority, again, it wasn't authority given Adam so that he can be king. I mean, Scripture constantly tells the story of all the bad things that happen when men do exalt themselves. That was never the purpose of Eve being given to Adam. And not only that, with the authority given Adam in this created order that's there, Adam's responsible. Because think of it. The snake comes in and he tempts Eve. You guys remember if you were here last week, you know the whole story. We went through it. Satan, who refused the authoritative structure of heaven would not be submitted to God, said, I will establish my own kingdom. I'll put my throne up above the stars. He's going to reject God's authoritative model. He gets evicted out of heaven. He comes to Eve and he uses the exact same temptation with her. He's like, you can be God. And he comes to Eve. He comes to, if you will, the one who does have the least authority in this structure that God's laid out. And he says, you don't have to be like this. You can be like God. You can be the one who's ascended. He gives the exact same temptation to her. And Eve bites. She takes of the fruit. And then Adam with her. But when God comes on the scene, though who ate first? Eve. Who sinned first? Eve. Who does God come looking for? Adam. Adam, where are you? In the New Testament, in the writings of the New Testament, like we would look at the story and go, well, Eve's the one who did this first. It's her responsibility. Paul's writings in the Old Test or New Testament never mention her like this. What they say is that through Adam, sin and death entered into the world. He's the one who is responsible. He's the one who's carrying the blame. He was the one because of the authoritative or leadership role that was given him. He's the one that God comes looking for. But back to our story, hasn't happened yet. There's this created paradise. There's harmony. I assure you, up until the serpent came and tempted her, Eve's not complaining about her role. Neither one of them are. They are in paradise. They're enjoying this fellowship with God. There's no tension. There's none of those things. And again, now I I should say, even as I start talking about authoritative structure, and oh, did Jeff really say that Eve was on the low end of that totem pole and that at that time, first of all, let's just say, there were only two people. So it's, I'm not saying she's last of all creation. That's not what I mean. But, but Jeff, did you really say that? And there's some of you are breaking out already, like hives and all this kind of stuff. There's a reason that you don't like that. It's biblical. There's a reason that that exists. It's Genesis 3. When Satan came, tempted them, they sinned. All the finger pointing starts. Suddenly the harmony and the structure and everything that was there is broken. Adam starts blaming Eve. Eve's, it, it looks like a scene where like you came into the living room and there's a big mess or maybe your, your lamp is broken on the floor and your kids are all there and you're like, all right, who did it? And they've already scattered. And now you're wringling all your kids together and you're like, all right, let's figure this out. Who did this? Like that's literally what this scene looks like. God, God the Father comes in and says, uh, what, what has happened here? And Adam's like, it was her. And she's like, it was a snake. Like there's this whole finger pointing and blame and shame. All of this is happening. And then God pronounces or speaks what is referred to as the curse in Genesis 3. Now, I do not believe personally that when Genesis 3 came along, that it's like a, a, a punishment God decided to enact on Adam and Eve. I don't believe that. 
I believe that he was telling them from the very beginning that this is the stuff that will happen if you eat of this fruit. And now he's got Adam and Eve in the room and he's going, oh man, okay, life's going to get really different now, guys. And I need to explain to you what's going to happen. I don't believe it's God going, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do now. You're going to, and pronouncing or enacting curse on them, I believe he's explaining to them, this is now what's happened in the created order. And now that you've rebelled, now that sin and death have entered, things are going to get really, really different. And so, so he begins to start talking. He, first, he goes to the serpent. In verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. On dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Do we know that that's true? Ladies, you like snakes? Bible's true, Right? Guys, you don't either. You just act manly about it, but you jump too. I've seen you in the woods. I know how it works. There's enmity. But then look, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mentioned this last week. Genesis 3.15 is referred to as the proto-evangelium. It means the first gospel. Think about the grace in this. He's told them, look, when you eat of this fruit, surely you will die. But now he comes in and he says to them, but not yet. In fact, you're still going to have a seed. You're still going to have a lineage. You're still going to have kids. And one day, one of those kids is going to be born. And this, this serpent is going to bruise his heel. And we saw Good Friday Easter service that he, Jesus was crushed beyond recognition. But then he says, but, but he, this, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this hope that this enemy that has come in, that has ruined this order, this enemy that is playing us, will one day be crushed, that we will be avenged. It's this incredible, beautiful hope. And then in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Is the Bible true, ladies? If there was ever a place we are not jealous of you, that's the one right there. That's the one. Can we get an amen for epidurals, anyone? And then look, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And right there, God says, there's going to now be significant tension between you and your spouse. And, and you're going to resist or resent the authority that he has over you. And he's going to respond by ruling over you. Really, one of the two paradigms or the two extremes, either they respond just like Adam initially in, in completely passive, do nothing. Where was Adam when Eve was being tempted? He was there, but he had his mouth shut the whole time. Spoke up, not at all. Didn't take care of his responsibilities. Passive, wimpy Adam. Or you'll respond the other way. His desire will be to rule over you and men will respond with too much authority because they'll make themselves gods. They'll make themselves kings. And they'll make everyone else in their little kingdom all subjects who exist to please them. And the tension comes from that. You have men that are completely passive and check out completely or total overbearing jerks. That's the, that's the extremes. And then to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return from the ground. For out of it you were taken away. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So now Adam, who was in paradise to cultivate everything that used to work with him, is now working against him. All the ground, all of those things. Now he has thorns, now he has weeds, now he has sweat and strain and work is hard. And he's going to have to fight now for fulfillment in doing these things. It's not going to be like it used to be. There's, there's not going to be the same joy in what he was doing before because it's all broken. Everything that once worked with him is going to work against him, including Eve, including his own wife. What God is saying right away is that the moment sin and rebellion to my creative order came into play, the moment you rebelled against me, everything was broken and life got really hard for everyone involved. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so it's going to be common that we would come to texts like this and go, I like this. But here's the thing I want you guys to understand. Here's a couple of disclaimers before we move forward. First is this. The issue of the text, back in Colossians 3 now, the primary issue is not one of submission to your husband. The primary issue is of submission to God. That's the part that broke. And we have to understand that because you can use this text as some magic formula that says if you'll just start to submit to your wife, everything will go fine. It's hard. Marriage is hard. Amen? It's hard. It just is. All the fake Christian, oh, we're just doing great. When you fought in the car the whole way here is dumb because the Bible tells us it's hard. But the issue is submission and trust with God. That's what, you will not find joy in a husband that's doing his job. That's not going to be your ultimate source of joy. You're going to find your ultimate source of joy in humble submission and trust to God who is our king. The second disclaimer is again, if you have been raised with Christ, I want to reiterate again, he's speaking to Christians. I totally get why an unbeliever would hate everything I've said up to this point. I get it. It's not for you. And it's not something we should be afraid of because they don't like it. He speak, your God and king is speaking to us. So how do we navigate this thing? Because verse 18, Colossians 3, it's time to stop avoiding it. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Can, can we make one more disclaimer? We are not. This text, so many people think that this means women become slaves to their masters. And they lose their voice. They lose any decision-making ability. They become absolute passive slaves to the whims of their husband. And they should just shut up, go along with it, and hope everything works out in the long run. It's not true. And especially not true, ladies, if you are in the home of an abusive man, please, by the grace of God, get out. Get out. I will never be the pastor that points to a verse like this and says, just trust in Jesus while you're being physically beaten down and harmed psychologically. If you're in the home of an abusive man, please contact us and get out. And if you are the abusive man, because let's just be honest, 
Um, a lot of women in abusive relationships, it's so hard for them to leave on so many levels. Fears of how they're gonna deal with stuff on the other end, especially when kids are involved, it becomes incredibly complicated. So it's really hard and often rare for a woman to leave an abusive relationship. So if that happens to be the case of anyone in here and any guy in here happens to be the abusive male, knock it off. You're not a man. That doesn't make you manly. And to use God's word as any sort of like uh, backing for that, you need to understand something. What you are doing is demonic. You are abusing God's child. And one day, whether you get away with it here on earth or not, one day you will stand before the Lord of lords and King of kings. And I assure you, your knees will buckle. So you need to get on your knees and repent now and get help. Like, don't just, okay, I'll never do it again. Ridiculous. Get help. Humble yourself. Go talk to somebody. Something's messed up. Go get help. And maybe it's because you were abused. Whatever the case may be, I don't care. We'll come alongside if you're going to humble yourself and do that. But stop abusing God's daughter. So that disclaimer out of the way. I want to make sure everyone understands. There are abusive situations that exist that you go, we got bigger things we need to deal with before we talk about issues of submission. Okay, ladies, if you're in an abusive home, please, by God's grace, talk to us. Let us try to get you out, but get out. That is not God's will for your life to shut up and deal with it. Amen, church? That is absolutely not. So what does it mean then? Wives, submit to your husbands. I like the way Ephesians puts it in Ephesians 5.33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word there is respect. And um, ladies, I'm going to be really honest with you and, and, and tell you something about us men that most of the men, maybe your husbands will not admit to or your boyfriends or whatever, but I'll just tell you. And they might say, not me. They're lying. Okay, they're lying. Guys, get over it. Um, men today do, and it's, it's not a sob story for men. We'll deal with men in a minute. But men today often are just constantly being just beat down. I mean, look how men are portrayed in TV shows and sitcoms and movies and, and especially dads. Like dads, uh, male, like dads are idiots on TV. They just are. They just are. And, and here's the reality of it. Every man deep down wants to just feel appreciated, wants to feel like he matters, wants to feel like he's good at something. That's that kind of respect, encouragement. Every man deep down wants that. You can tell the difference if you look at the social media accounts between the two. What do women post? Half the women, especially mothers, you don't even have pictures of yourself at all. They're just pictures of kids and Pinterest. That's all you have on your social media stuff. Kids, kitchens, food. That's it, right? What do men post? Here's my fish. Hero shots, that's what we call them, right? Um, here I am on the golf course. Here I am with this bull that I shot. Here I am, what, I mean, here's the hot rod that I just rebuilt. Men post accomplishments. Men post things that they're looking for some form of, of affirmation or attention from. Men want to feel that they're good at something, that they're respected, and that they matter. And more than anything, Wives, they want it from you, whether they'll admit it or not. They'll find it somewhere, or try, 
but they really want it for you. I'm, I'm a country music fan. Anyone else? There's a song right now. It's a mushy love song, I know. I love it, though, because it's so true. There's a song called There's a Girl. You guys know that song? So I'm not going to sing it. All the ladies are like, oh. <laughs> not going to sing it, trust me. But, but I want you to listen to the chorus of this. Listen. I mean, why would we drive 600 miles one way, blow through cash that we ain't made? It's a country song, ain't. Get tattoos, wash our trucks, push and press our luck. Why would we ask when we know we can't dance? Show our hands, change our plans, lose our minds, break our hearts, or even learn to play guitar. Why does any man do anything in the whole <clears throat> dang world? Because there's a girl. There's so much truth in that song. Ladies, I have thought for so long, you could rule the world if you were better organized. <laughs> you could. This text, like people think, man, if I do this, if I do what God's asking me to do and I submit to my husband, oh, that dirty word, if I do this, I lose all my influence, I lose all my abilities, I lose all my voice, I lose all these kind of things. And I would say, no, you amplify your voice in your marriage if you do this. And in, instead of a husband that's behind you or a husband that's leaving you, I'm telling you, you become the greatest cheerleader that your husband has. And I, and I know there's exceptions to every rule. I understand all of that. Um, most of us want to consider we're exceptions. We're usually not. But I'm, but I'm telling you, instead of being left behind, you'll be right beside him, I guarantee you. Men want that. Adam wanted that. He was desperate for that. And no matter how many buddies he has that he goes and hangs out with, it is a biblical fact that they are an incomplete fit. That's not what he was made for. And so I just want to encourage you, ladies, encourage your husband. I mean, I'll tell you from my own experience, like that's what we want. I mean, so many girls, my, my girls, they grow up and they watch these these. Um, princess, Disney princess movies and they dream of the fantastic wedding with the prince who comes in and Prince Charming kind of a thing and, and we look at that like oh see they're playing dress up and that's what they want they want to marry Prince Charming one day but the honest truth is is that every guy grows up wanting to be the hero that they want too you know, well my husband's no Gustav well we'll deal with him in a minute but can I just tell you that will minister to the soul of your husband if you just became an encourager. You become his cheerleader, his, his biggest fan. And I, the, the, think about this. <laughs> this is funny. Think about, okay, God said this, ladies, so don't get mad at me, but God said this. This is a Bible verse. You ready for this? It is better to live in a desert wasteland than to live in the house with a nagging woman. God wrote that. <laughs> now, if you think about that, that is so funny. The redeeming God of the universe said, dude, you would be better off in the desert on your own than in that house with her. God said that. He said more. It is better to be on the roof than in the house with a nagging woman. Again, God. Like, dude, I'm sorry. Should I, you want me to just kill you? I don't know, would that be better? Like, or a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife, quarrelsome wife 
are the same. Think about that. God wrote this. God said, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are the same. Why would God say that? Like that seems rude. I can't believe that the God, the loving God who wrote the Psalms and all those things, I know the plans I have for you of good and not an evil to give you a future and a hope. Dude, you are better off on the roof than like, I know your future, just get a ladder, man. Like it's not good right now for you. Like why, why would he actually say this? Well, Proverbs 31 in this, this beautiful picture in Proverbs 31 about this, this ideal kind of godly woman that's portrayed there. It says this, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And you go, what does that mean, not harm? It's because most of the harm that a woman ever does to her husband is done with words. And I just want to tell you, like, there are so many things out there that are telling your husband, just like they tell all of us, how inadequate he is. And even the media that we watch just makes buffoons out of us half the time. But what he really wants is to feel respected. Well, it's, it's one of the two things he really wants. But he, um, that's another sermon for another time. But, but this might be more, might even be more important. Might even be more important. Like, I, I don't think that submitting, yes, now listen, there is an ultimate authority issue. But I mean, honestly, between two people that are Christians, godly people in a marriage, no matter what kind of function or dysfunction is present, I mean, how often does that even actually happen where the disagreements are so severe that, some, that the man has to go, well, then we're going to do this. In my marriage, it's happened once, one time. And it was because I bought a gun. And that was it. One time, my wife was adamant, did not want guns in the house. Did not, by the way, can I just tell you, Nothing is scarier than having to preach this text about what marriages look like when your wife is in the room. Super like, ugh, just so you know. So don't think I'm enjoying this, men and women. But, but the, uh, someone was writing us and, and had been stalking us, sent emails to us that they were going to kidnap our children. They were going to castrate the dog. He texted me my home address so we knew that he had been there. It was just on and on, confronted us in different places. It was a significant thing um, until it got so bad that an, he even came to the office looking for me. Like, and so the, it got so bad that a police officer was like, what's your plan? I was like, well, I got a Louisville slugger under the bed. That's all I got, man. I, I even had a concealed weapon permit, but my wife was so adamant not wanting guns. I just was like, all right, I'm, I'm not, not going to do that. He was like, man, you need a different plan. That's what he told me. So I, I told my wife, I was like, hey, um, I, I know that you disagree with this. And she was mad. Ooh. But I was like, I, hi, hon. Um, <laughs> and I, but, but I was like, I, I know, but I have to do this. And so this is, this is what I'm going to go do. Some of you are judging me right now. I know that. Some of you are even like, what kind of pastor is that? You should be a man of faith. And I've been judged by that before. You should be a man of faith. You don't have to do all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the roles of a husband is to be the shepherd. And shepherds protect their flock and shoot wolves. So glory to God and lock and load. That's my <laughs> philosophy on the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, oh, stop. It's not a Trump rally. Stop. <laughs> but that's it. That's it. I truly believe that two godly people who are seeking to honor and do the right thing are not going to end up in too many situations where they have to go, this is just what we're going to have to do and you're going to have to go along with it. I don't, I don't think that's what happens. Especially because it's an issue of mutual submission. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Men, we love our wives different than we love pizza, beer, and football. You understand, right? 
Like we love our wives differently than, than that. It's different. It is a sacrificial love. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves his self. And this is sacrificial love, listen, for her own good. So here's where problems have come in the church with this specific text. I have heard them. I've probably even taught it from this angle before. And, but here, here's what can happen. Men, you're the leaders, right? And so this is what you need to do. If you love your wife in this fashion, I'm telling you she will follow. The submission thing won't be a problem. Men, if you do this, she's going to follow. And so then a lot of men will go, cool, I want my wife to follow. I want her to, to be submitted to me. I want peace and I want joy and happiness in here. So I'll start doing these things. But you end up approaching it from a standpoint like you're gonna go start loving your wife because you're looking to get something out of her for yourself. And then what if she doesn't respond? And there's all sorts of reasons that can happen. So what if she doesn't respond? Now, you got issues with the Bible because you feel like it didn't work. You're more angry with her because now you're like, now I feel like I have the authority of God in what I did and she actually didn't do it. You're in a worse place than ever. And if she knows that's why you did, it's even worse because now she will feel completely, totally manipulated. And you're like, but I did what the Bible told me to. No, that's not. You loved her for your own good. And then you just didn't get what you wanted out of it. That's not the case. You, you use the Bible to get what you want. And over and over and over, we see what happens when men do that in the scriptures. That's not what we're called to. Listen, you don't love your wife for a response. Your love for your wife is a response, a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who, how did he love us? How lovable were we when he went to the cross? The Bible says we were his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies rebellious to God's authority. Adam and Eve were rebellious to God and God came in with his grace anyway. And all of these other things are then a response from that. And we certainly don't use the word of God and hold it over someone's head. Jesus doesn't even do that with the cross. Can you imagine? Like Jesus doesn't hold the cross over our head to make us do stuff. He just keeps pointing to how much he loves us. Why? Because he's good and he's for our good. That's what sacrificial love is. That's hard. Because we are selfish people, prideful, selfish people. It's so difficult. But men, this is what you got to understand. Go back to Adam in the garden, the original design that he was given. Here's the idea. Your home and your household is a garden. And it is your job to cultivate that garden so that it blooms. And so is your wife. It is our responsibility. And we are all, me, chiefest of sinners, we are not great at this. But our responsibility is to create and culture an environment in the same way that, we, that Adam was to do with the garden so that there's flourishing. And here's what happens, guys. We go, I pay the rent, I protect, I provide the food, and we will beat our chest over those provision things. And by the way, that is absolutely a godly requirement. Men, you are supposed to provide for your homes. You are supposed to provide for your family. You are supposed to protect your family. All of those things are required. Not provide the wants, by the way, 
Um, wants, the Bible is constantly telling us, it's like the rivers that run into the ocean and the ocean's never full. Wants are insatiable. That's not the issue. It's about providing needs. And honestly, sometimes we're in different places. Sometimes providing for your wife is ramen noodles because that's just where you are and you're struggling, but you're fighting. So we, so we are supposed to provide for the needs of our family. And so what we'll do is we'll go, well, I provide. And we'll, we'll beat our chest because we protect and those manly kinds of things. But what about the other stuff like emotional? <sighs> right? Like, do you, do you, do, do you buy gifts and, and try to date and do things like that for your wife? Do you provide for her emotional needs? That's not manly. I'm not very romantic. God gave you Google. It's, it's easy now. Like God gave you Google. Pinterest is there. Get an account. You don't have to tell anybody, but you can look around and you'll see. Like there's ideas, there's things. And even more so spiritual. Like it's men who beat our chests about how we'll protect our family. It's your job to be the spiritual pace setter in your home. Your job to lead. And here's the honest truth of what tends to happen. What happens is, is when I announced that we had a marriage workshop coming up, most of the men in this room were praying their wives won't ask them to go. That's the truth. Praying that they won't have to go. Instead of leading and saying, it's my responsibility to be the leader we love the idea of, yes, we aren't the ones called to submit. Oh, yes, you are. To God. Think about that. Because the Bible tells us one day we will give an account for all the things God has given us. We will give account for our money. We will give account for our time. We give account for our giftings that God's given us. All those things, that judgment, every Christian believer is going to go through. You will stand before God and give account. And if he's concerned about your money and your gifts, don't you think he might ask about the daughter he put in your care? Wouldn't you? It's a stewardship issue. She's not yours. She's God's. And God's serious about that. First Peter, it talks about the fact that if you're not honoring and treasuring your wife's, he won't even listen to your prayers. God's not even listening to you if you're not doing this. But what would it look like, men, if we had a church of men who were not holding on to their pride about things from romance to spiritual leadership, who were willing to push those things aside, and who would beat their chest over spiritual successes with their families to the same degree you all cheered when I mentioned a gun? Imagine what that would look like. Imagine the benefit to your children and your children's children and your children's children to set that sort of lineage up, that we would go back and actually trust God and take that seriously, but also tremble in absolute fear, realizing, men, one day we will stand before God. And we're gonna answer that question. And here in our text, it says, Did, and not treating them harshly. So that means your leadership is not dragging them around like there's, there's men that do that. Well, I'm the leader in the household, so I control all the finances and I control everything. Meanwhile, their wife has no idea if there's any money in the bank. They have no idea where the next bills are coming from. They have no idea what any sort of schedule or calendar or anything like that is. They have no say-so in any decision-making whatsoever. Just 
totally compliant, that's all they're expected to be, left in the dark, drugged through life by the husband who is domineering in his authority and not honoring her as the weaker vessel, as porcelain, the way God designed her, and certainly not thinking about her as God's daughter. You're thinking about her as existing for you. But the wives were given to the husbands to further the mission of God. She doesn't belong to us. She's a gift. She's a gift. But you will not stand before your wife in heaven with your wife saying, so how did you treat me? You'll stand before her heavenly father, God, and give account. I'm terrified of that day. Right? Wouldn't you, aren't we all? Shouldn't we be? Terrified of that day. So what do we do with that? With all of this? Well, I mean, here's the honest truth. No one in this room is nailing nailing it everywhere in marriage. It just doesn't exist. So let's just, <sighs> we pretend, fight with our wives on the whole drive in, get out of the car and do the whole cheesy Christian, like, hey, everything's good, but liars, all of you. Like it's none, no one in this room is nailing it. When, I, when I'm writing marriage sermons, it's like a constant guilt trip for myself. Like no one's nailing this, right? But, but here's the deal. Stop worrying about the past and just understand the fact that God in his sovereignty has called you to this place today where we happen to be in this text and he's put something before you. And so you can either cower like Adam and do nothing or you can keep being domineering or you can go, I, from today moving forward, what am I gonna do? And so here's what I'm gonna do, men. I'm gonna talk to you on this one because I talked longer for the ladies. But here's the thing, men, I dare you to be the one that signs up for marriage retreats. I dare you to be the one that invests in your household. I dare you to be the one that goes, you know what? We're in a place right now where things are a little complicated and we could use some help. So, so um, hey, I've called this Christian counselor and we're gonna go see him. There's no shame in that. I go to a Christian counselor. My wife and I both, there's no shame in that. The Bible tells us marriage is hard. Life is hard. Work is hard. Parenting is hard. It's there. Why wouldn't we go get wisdom from people who have been through things before us? That's actually the biblical model. But men, don't be passive. Don't be the ones who define manhood based on the things that our culture esteems as manly and then ignores the other elements of masculinity that God defines because we don't care what the culture thinks. We are under shepherds of God Almighty and he's the one we'll give account for. And so may we be men who are quick to bend a knee and repent and pray, beg of God's grace and even beg of energy to be able to do it because work's hard and then you come home. But men, let's lead. Let's see what it would be like to have a church full of people that would beat their chest over things like how their children got baptized to the same degree they would esteem their gun collection on Instagram. I, I'm telling you, if that happens, that will make a difference in your household. I guarantee it. Amen? I'm way, 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 way over, and I lost my notes a long, long time ago. So let's just, let's just trust that this is what the Lord had for us today, and let's stand and pray, can we? If you weren't humbled by this, wait till we get to parenting. Father, we just bow before you. And for those who would join with me, Lord, we just repent for our failures and our pride and our arrogance and our selfishness and ask for your, your empowerment, Lord. Lord, I, I know there's people in this room 
who have lost husbands, have lost wives, or who have never had them to begin with. And I just pray, God, that you would be such a strong, faithful father to them and that they would understand that the ultimate source of joy was never intended to be our spouse, but it's you. And may they find that joy and fulfillment in you. May you be a father to the fatherless. May you be a husband to the wife, to the widow. Lord, I pray that you would be our source of joy and fulfillment. May you bless them. And Lord, if you would, would you bring those desires to completion for them as well? And Lord, for those of us that are in this room that, that are married, I just pray for your grace because we all fail so, so often. But God, may you empower us to just walk a little closer to you, to do a little better, to be better husbands and better wives tomorrow than we were yesterday, and to just trust you in this. And Lord, even in these situations, Lord, I, I just pray that we would just constantly remember that it's not a submission to our wife or submission to our husband issue. It's a submission to you. So may we trust you and realize that you are wooing us to good and to joy. And may we just trust you in that, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for those who may struggle with some of the things that we talked about or even areas that maybe I was wrong in, in what I shared. God, I pray that you would sort those things out in the hearts, minds, and soul of people here. But I pray that your word would have its lasting effect in our souls even as we leave. And so we pray these things in your name, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.